Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we begin a new study series, OMG, or Oh My God. During this study, lead pastor David Fossil will guide us as we look at who God is, his different attributes and characteristics, and finding some answers about why that should matter to us. Join us as Pastor Dave begins by looking at the power or strength of God and gives us some pointers on how we can have God's power in our lives. Well, good morning, Bay Hills. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to page 254, 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. Grab the study guide that's in your program. As you guys are uh, doing that, I did uh, some Google searching this week. Uh, a couple things I wanted to share with you. Uh, let's put the first slide up there. The strongest man in the world right now from the strongman competition is this guy right here. Let's put it up there, Brian Shaw. That is ridiculous. I don't know how he does that. Uh, I have a hernia just looking at that. Um, okay, the next, uh, next one. Uh, strongest superhero as voted by, I don't know, a thousand nerds. I don't know how they decide this, whatever. Was voted by, let's put it in, who won? It was Thor. He beat out Superman by an edge or something, okay? Uh, for those of you, this might come in helpful. Uh, the strongest energy drink, okay? If you need a little kick, okay? It turned out to be this one right here, red line. Has anyone drunk had one of these? This guy's been up since Wednesday. He hadn't been up since Wednesday, I guess, okay? Uh, the next one, let's put it up. Uh, strongest animal. Now, this animal can bench press 1,000 times its own body weight. Okay, go ahead and put it up there. The dung beetle, huh? What do you think of that? Okay, you got a couple dung beetles right there. You see that little circle there? You know what that is? Piece of dung. Bet you never saw that in church, huh? There it is on the screen. Okay, let's put the next thing up there. Um, okay, strongest politician ever. Jesse Ventura almost got it. But in fact, the person who won it, let's put it up there. The governor. Huh? I think he would have been much more popular as our governor if uh, he had done the press conferences just like that. We would have paid attention, don't you think? <laughs> okay, I think I got one more, okay? Uh, the strongest muscle in the body. Now, this is proportionate to its size. The strongest muscle in the body is this one right here. The tongue. The tongue. By the way, that was the... Um, least obscene image I could find on Google image. Just Google image tongue once. It's not very pretty. But that's, uh, okay. So why am I talking about strongest this, strongest that? We are starting a brand new series today. OMG, oh my God. Who is God and what does it matter? Why does it matter to me? Uh, if you look at your study guide, what we're doing this morning is uh, we are going to look at the power or strength of God. Each week we're going to look at a different characteristic, a different attribute of God, okay? And uh, what I'm going to try and do is show you that these attributes and characteristics are not just some, you know, um, high-thinking, philosophical, theological, just for pastors in their books, in a library kind of an issue. No, it can have an impact on your life today, right now, okay? And uh, so the Bible talks about the strength or the power of God. Let's just kind of introduce it, look at a couple verses that the Bible says about the strength of God. Psalm 24, verse 8, the Lord is strong and mighty. The Lord is mighty in battle. Okay, now, well, there have been a lot of people that have been mighty in battle, a lot of armies that have been powerful. So that, that introduces that he's strong. Okay, well, how about the next one? Jeremiah 32, he has this big discussion, Jeremiah, in, in chapter 32. And this is conclusion. Nothing 
is too hard for God. Now, this is clearly taking it to the next level. It's not just saying God is strong. It's saying there's nothing he cannot do. He's like crazy strong. But just so we're clear, God speaks in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. And here's what he says. He is speaking, last book of the Bible, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, is that what that means? We'll talk about him being infinite at some point in time in this series. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That is the primary word that is used to describe the strength and the power of God. The word Almighty. It is used 345 times in the Bible, always in reference to God. Okay, now... Um, the theologians have taken two Latin words a long time ago and combined them to talk about this principle of God's strength. And, and the, the word that they've come up with to refer to this is omnipotence. Let me give you the definition if you want to write it down. Omnipotence is, is the idea that God has absolute power and authority. That's very important. It's not that he's completely powerful. It's that he has every right to use his power how he chooses to. He has complete and absolute power and authority to achieve his purpose and his will. Now, in your study guide, too, I've given you a couple evidences of God's power if you want to jot them down. Uh, the first one is his creation. Um, just by one example. The sun, we are told, produces more power in one second than mankind has used in its entire history. We are also told by scientists that the sun could continue to burn at the same intensity for the next 30 billion years. Now, what's the point of me bringing this up? Here's the point. God made the sun. It's something as powerful as the sun, and God made it, the sun. The second is his miracles. I mean, you, it could be, you know, the feeding of the 10,000. It could be the parting of the Red Sea. It could be countless miracles that he's done, this, that, and the other. It, just the miracles alone show his powers, his sovereignty. Uh, Psalm says that God is in control of all the nations. You go, well, I don't know about that. Well, whether you believe it, uh, whether you agree with it, God said that, that that is used as an evidence in the Bible. That, and that's why I want to show you. And the last and the most clear evidence of God's power is his son, Jesus. Jesus, we see, shows himself and displays power over nature. He calms the sea. Uh, he shows his power over illness. You know, the blind person that is able to see his ability to show and exert power over Satan and his power over death. Now, let, let me just give you an example. You know, this past week in the Bay Area, we've had two kind of Bay Area natives or people that, that have passed away. You know, we had Steve Jobs earlier in the week and then Al Davis. And it's kind of been in all the papers. Everybody's been talking about it. Let me just say something real quick um, to kind of rattle you out of your thinking in terms of as it applies to, to, to Jesus. As crazy as this may sound, and this is in no way meant to be disrespectful, but to really get you to think, what would happen next week if the National Enquirer had a piece saying that one of those two guys that passed away this week came back to life. We would be like, you guys are nuts. But what if the USA Today started talking about it and Time Magazine talked about it and then it was on CBS News? I mean, can you imagine what would happen? Why do I, why do I say that? I say that because we talk about the, quote, resurrection of Jesus Christ so much, we have lost the awe factor. We sang two songs at the beginning of the service that talked about his resurrection. Did any of us at any point in time go, I still can't believe he did that? Probably not. And it's not your fault. We just talk about it so often and it comes off over and over again that we just kind of, we lose the buzz factor. 
I want you to imagine, and we wind the tape 2,000 years, we're living not in the East Bay. We live in Palestine, old Jerusalem. Hey, did you guys hear? The, the, the teacher, the Nazarene, he's gone. He died. It's kind of a bummer. He was a good guy. And then next week, we start reading blogs. We start seeing texts. Oh, my goodness, it's on Facebook. He's back, back, came back to life. Can you imagine what that would make us think? And that's the point I'm trying to bring up here. Just the fact that he conquers death, not only his own death, but is able to raise other people from the dead, is proof, is evidence of his power. Now, right about now, some of us are starting to have objections to this idea that God is all-powerful. There's two primary objections. I'm not going to take this too far. It's not in your notes, but it's going to be helpful. First, you have the objection of the skeptic, okay? Philosophically speaking, there is a question that is asked sometimes, and here's how it goes. Here's the question. The skeptic asks this question. Can God make a rock that is too big or too heavy for him to to, to lift? Can God make a rock too big for him to lift? So think about it. If he cannot make it, then he's not all-powerful. If he can make it, but then he can't lift it, then again, he's not all-powerful. And it's kind of like circular reasoning. A lot of philosophers refer to this as a false dilemma. The question in and of itself cannot have a reasonable answer. But one of the things that we need to understand is that this book, the Bible, does not say that God can do everything. That is not what the definition of omnipotence means. Omnipotence means that God can do anything within his power that is consistent with his character. He cannot do everything. Let me give you a couple examples. God cannot lie. Because part of his character is that he's truthful. So whatever he does has to be has to match up with that characteristic. God cannot sin. Why can't he sin? Because he's also holy. So whatever he does has to match that characteristic. God cannot be subject to anyone else. Why? Because he's sovereign. So whatever he does has to be consistent with that characteristic. God cannot cease to exist. Because one of his characteristics is that he's infinite. So his omnipotence means he can do anything he wants to do that is consistent with his character. Okay? So that's kind of talking to the skeptic. The next person, the sufferer, they don't ask a question based upon what they're thinking. They ask a question based upon what they're feeling. And here's how this question comes up. If God is all-powerful, why is there so much pain in the world? Why do planes crash? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do tornadoes destroy the homes of people? Why does that, why does that happen? If he's all-powerful, why doesn't he stop it? Now, I, I, I'm, I'm going to give you the 122nd answer to this. If you want to get real deep, uh, you can go listen to the podcast from the God questions we had a while back. But very simply, here's one of the things you have to understand about pain and suffering and evil in the world. First thing is this. If God were to eliminate all pain this afternoon, he would also have to eliminate the ability for you to have a free choice. Because the pain that we experience in the world initially and primarily came from our free choice to do this, do that, go here, go there. And every once in a while, those free choices are boneheaded decisions that cause pain in my life and or I cause pain in your life. So God could, boom, just this afternoon, eliminate all pain. But he would also have to eliminate your ability to make free choice. He could he'd just turn you into a robot. You would automatically obey him whether you wanted to or not. And he's not prepared or wants to do that. 
But the second thing, he could eliminate pain and suffering and evil this afternoon. But one of the things we don't realize is what else he would have to eliminate. You see, you need to think about evil as something that doesn't exist by itself. Think about it like you would think of rust. Rust doesn't exist by itself. Rust always exists as a complement to metal. You don't have rust without metal, okay? Evil is much the same way. Evil doesn't exist by itself. It always must exist in conjunction with something else. You know what that something else is? It's us. It's you and it's me. Because the Bible tells us we have this thing called a sin nature within us. God could eliminate evil and destroy evil this afternoon. But he would also have to destroy every single one of us. Which he is not prepared to do. And so you, you have this dilemma. Do, do you want to live in a life, uh, in a world that God gives you free will and free choice? Well, obviously. And, and God wants to redeem as many people as he can back to himself. So he's not going to eliminate evil right now. Now, I could continue to go down paths that very interesting philosophically and theologically to talk about this. But the point that I really want to drive home in this series is that the attributes and character of God are not some high-thinking, philosophical, theological thing that are just for university professors to talk about. No. The characteristics of God and His power and strength, what makes it so special is that it, it is available to you right now. One of the, the, the biggest tragedies in, in uh, um, the United States when it comes to school disasters occurred just before World War II in a small Texas town called Itasca. And as the story is, is told, uh, a fire burned through the, grades, uh, through the school that day, it killing 263 children. Imagine that disaster. Um, a couple years after the World War was ended, late 40s and early 50s, Itasca, the town of Itasca, decided to rebuild the school. And they made a decision, the administrators, that never, ever, ever again will we have a fire disaster the way we did. And so for a while, they, they decided to install the most sophisticated sprinkler system that had ever been created. No government building had it. No corporation had it. This small school in Itasca, Texas, had the most sophisticated sprinkler system in the world. We don't think about sprinkler systems as everywhere in all buildings today, but not in the late 1940s. So they build a sophisticated water sprinkler system. When, when, when honor students are taking adults and parents and giving them tours of the school, they're pointing out there's a new sprinkler system. State of the art. Seven years later, this, the, the town continues to grow. Uh, there's more kids. They need more room in the school. They call in a contractor. They're going to add a wing. Okay? And they start working on this new wing to the school. And it's at that point in time that the contractor discovered something. And this is what they discovered. The school had never hooked up the sprinkler system to the water supply. I know a lot of Christians like that. We have the most sophisticated, the greatest source of power available to us, and we've never connected. We've never hooked up to it. And we're wondering, why? Why am I not experiencing the power of God? You're not connected. You're not hooked up. What I want to do is for the next 15, 20 minutes, I want to give you five prerequisites. How do you get God's power? How do you live in God's power? And oh, by the way, God's power isn't, you know, you get strength so you can, you know, beat up that neighbor or coworker you don't like. It's not that kind of power. It's the power to live a life the way God wants you to live, the way you want to live. 
That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in in, um, 1 Kings chapter 18. It's the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Some of you may have heard it before. I want to look at it from a different angle this morning. Um, I'll fill in some of the gaps for those of you who don't know Elijah. We're going to start in verse 16. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 16. It says, So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab, the king, went then to meet Elijah the prophet. Verse 17. Ahab, the king, said to Elijah, uh, when, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Verse 18, I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, let me give you some context. For the last two years, there have not been, there's not been any rain in the land. And the reason for that is because um, uh, Elijah has prophesied that. He said there's not going to be any rain. Okay, it's coming from God, but Elijah prophesies that. Now, in, in, in a, a society that is dominated by agriculture, this is a disaster. It causes an economic meltdown because the, the farmers aren't able to produce their crops anymore, right? And so it's a major, major problem and an issue. That's why they refer, the king refers to Elijah as the troubler. But one of the things, if you do not know Elijah, this is a prophet with an attitude. He's very interesting. He's like, me? I'm the problem? I don't think so. And he fires right back at the king. He says, it's not my fault. It's your fault. You and your family's fault because of what you've chosen to do and how you've chosen to live your lives. Okay, so the story goes on. Verse 18, uh, verse 19, Elijah comes up with with an idea. Here's what we're going to do. Summon the people from all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel. Okay, a major central site, Mount Carmel. He could call several thousand people. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal. Baal was the pagan god of the region. There's 450 prophets, okay, priests, pastors, whatever you want to call them, call them, okay, and 50 prophets, uh, and, and the 400 prophet, prophetess of Asherah. This is the female pagan goddess. So there's 850 pagan prophets. Call 2,000 people of the land, call the 850 pagan prophets, a king and, king can, uh, and the king and queen can come. Verse 20, so Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. It's a good idea. Let's all have a, let's have a, we're, we're going to talk about this. You versus my 850 prophets. First principle, if you want to experience the power of God, comes in verse 21. Elijah went before the people. Everybody gets there, right? They've sent out the, 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 the invite on Facebook. Everybody shows up. They want to check out what's going on. He stands up. And he says, goes before the people and says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Here's principle number one. If you want to experience the power of God, at some point in time, you must make a clear, bold and obvious decision to everyone that you are fully committed to God. You are fully committed to God. King and queen is there, 850 prophets, and he says to the people, why are you straddling the fence? Let's just be clear. He is not speaking to unbelievers here. In our context, it would be non-Christians yet. Uh, You've heard me say before, I think it is important to have an atmosphere where people who have not yet connected to God feel that they can come and learn about God and get closer to God and not feel like they're getting thumped over the head. He's not talking to you. We're glad you're here. We glad and hope you get closer to God. You know who he's talking to? He's talking to God's people. And he asks a very simple question. How long is it going to take? How long is it going to take? 
He asks the same question and makes the same point that, that, that Jesus makes in Revelation. He, remember what Jesus says in Revelation to the church at Laodicea? I would prefer you to be hot for me, on fire for me, or I'd prefer you to be cold and against me. But you're lukewarm. You're right in the middle. You know how it is. You show up to church, you know, twice out of, twice out of the month. You know, you go to youth group every once in a while. I threw a few bucks in the offering. I help out here and there, you know, and uh, I'm pretty much a good person. But on the side, oh my goodness, you got all kinds of stuff you're doing on the side. You know what I'm talking about. Anything and everything you want to do, it's, it's just it's who I am. And you go back and forth and you play the, you play the God game and then you play, oh, I'm just going to do my own thing game. And Jesus says in Revelation, I would prefer you to be hot, I'd prefer you to be cold, but you're lukewarm, you're right in the middle. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to spit or literally vomit you out. It's the exact same thing Elijah says. It's the exact same thing. It's very simple. If you think, very simply, if you think the Lord is God, follow him. But if you don't, see ya. Bye. You go, well, that doesn't seem very seeker sensitive. That doesn't seem very kind. He's not trying to be kind. He's not trying to get in your face to like make you feel guilty. Here's what he's trying to do. I want you to experience God's power. And you not, you cannot do it playing these games. Either, either bail on God or go all in. But you want to know why you're not experiencing God's power? I'm just telling you. And I'm telling you because I want you to, uh, to, to help you. Points two through five don't matter. Just tune me out. Because if you don't do this, game over. Game over. You must, at some point in time, make a clear, bold decision for Jesus. I am not saying you have to become a Jesus freak and be at church every, every day of the, week, of the week. I'm not saying that. You don't have to wear Jesus shirts to, you know, church to, to, to work every day. You don't have to do that. Thank you. Some one person appreciate that. Yeah, no, you can still look good. You don't have to do, but you must make a clear, bold decision for him. It's very simply what, what Elijah's trying, try, trying to explain. He goes on. I, you know what, by the way, I, it's very interesting, the end of verse 21. Do you see the end of verse 21? The people said nothing. You know what I've noticed about people when you confront them or when I get confronted? When I think I'm right, I fire back. I defend myself. When people say nothing, normally they know the other person's right. Normally. People said nothing. Now, it could be because they didn't want to make a decision. It could be because they wanted to see. Let's see what, how this plays out. I don't know. But it's an interesting comment. Verse 22, Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. In other words, everyone's bailed on, on, on God. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let us choose one for themselves and, and, and let them cut it into pieces, put it, the, put it on the wood, but don't set it on fire. I will prepare the other bull. I will put, put the wood on and I will not set it on fire. Then you call the name of your God, on the name of your God and I will call on the name of my God. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And then the people said, what you say is good. This is like an old-fashioned Western duel. Here's what we're going to do. Let's get two bulls. We're going to put them on the altar. We're not going to light it. All we're going to do is we're going to call on God. Whoever sends fire down from the sky, they win. Let's go. Cage match. You and me. Let's go. You're God, my God. Let's go. And everybody says, this sounds kind of fun. Let's do it. 
Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many, call on the name of your God. Do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them, prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. This is going three, four hours. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But no response, no one answered. So then they tried something else. They danced around the altar they had made. Verse 27, I love. I love verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. If you ever wonder why I, every once in a while, sarcastically smack talk people, it's right here. It's right in the Bible. Man of God is allowed to do that occasionally. Elijah began to taunt them. I love what he says. Maybe you should shout louder. Surely your God is God. Perhaps he's in deep thought. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's traveling and on vacation. Maybe he's just sleeping, taking a nap, and must be awakened. He just gets in their face. What I think is very interesting, Hebrew experts, um, Book of Kings was first written in Hebrews, in Hebrew. And you see the word busy right in the middle of verse 27? You see it there? Hebrew experts believe that that word literally means he's busy, as in busy going to the bathroom. Maybe, maybe your God's in the john. I don't know. I love that about him. I mean, he's right in their face. It's not working. Verse 28, they shouted louder. They slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed. They continued in their frantic prophesying. It's not working until the time of evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And it's becoming clear to them, this is not working. It's not working. Then Elijah said to the people, come here. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Write this down. Principle number two. At some point in time, if you want God's power, you must get serious about worship. You must get serious about worship. Did you catch what Elijah had to do before he did his thing with the with the with with the sacrifice? The prophets of Baal. Okay, let's take the bull. Let's put him on our altar. No big deal. Elijah. Oh, before we got to do that. We're going to have to repair the altar because it's in ruins. Question, why is it in ruins? Because they haven't used it in like forever. You mean worshiping God? Yeah, no, we haven't been doing that. They haven't been doing that, so it's in ruins. Yeah, no, we're not into that anymore. We just kind kind of grew bored with God. Yeah, we don't do that. You ever get bored at church? We've all got bored at church at times, haven't we? Every single one of us heard of this dad. We had a little boy, and the little boy asked him, he said, Dad, what's the highest number you can count to? And dad's like, well, I can count pretty high. I, I don't know, you know. And then he said, well, what's the highest number you can count to? And the little boy, without missing a beat, he said, 5,372 is the highest I've ever counted to. And the dad said, that is a very specific and strange answer. So he said back to his son, why 5,372? Why did you stop there? And he says, because that's when the church service ended. Do you ever count sheep? Do you ever? Ooh, 10 minutes left. You know what? I got it. Joy and I understand this. We understand that whatever we do up here, how creative we are, how imaginative we are. Do we put fun pictures up there? You know, do we do whatever we do, bells and whistles. We understand 
that the more creative we are, the more engaged you can potentially get. But let me be very, very clear. You will never, ever, ever get bored with worship if you come in with the perspective of what can I give God, not what can I get from God. You will never grow, you will never grow, get, get bored with worship. If you show up to church thinking, I wonder if Dave's jokes are going to be any good this week, versus, I wonder if I'm going to hear from God this week, it's completely different. It's completely different. You know what worship is? It's three things. It's expressing your love to God. Well, he knows I love him. I mean, do I have to keep saying that? Uh, yeah. Why? Well, how do you think it would work, me and Sandy, if I said to her, you know what? November 18, 1989, I stood before a church, a pastor, and all our families. I told you I love you. Do I have to keep telling you over and over again? Guys, what do you think? Should I do that? This would be the time when you would do this real quickly. It's kind of important for a husband to do that. It's equally as important for us to do that with God. It's an expression of our love. It's not just saying, oh, I'm going to love him by what I do and he already knows it. No, you have to express it verbally is what he says. It's also an acknowledgement of his character, who he is. And most importantly, it's also reminding yourself of his rightful place in your life. Have you ever come to church and then you go throughout your week and as you're going throughout your week, you kind of get decalibrated. You come back to church and, and when you get back in, this, in, the, in the context of worship, you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. He is supposed to be number one in my life. Th- that's worship. I, you know what? I've told you before. I love our church, but we got some issues to work on. And one of the things I would love to see us as a church growing and improving is we must become more expressive in our worship. I think it's critically important that we do that. Um, I'm not suggesting we have to be, you know, a church that has ribbons and, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not saying that. But I'll tell you, I think we are way too white in our worship. I'll just say it. You know what I mean, right? We're just... Every once in a while, we'll do a Millie Vanilli, right? We won't actually sing, but we'll we'll lip sync. Because, you know, know, it's like American Idol. I don't have a good voice. It was never intended. Worship has nothing to do with whether you have a good voice or not. There's a song we sing called Face Down. You know where it comes from? It comes from the book of Revelation. When it all ends, it's all done. The mystery is over. Everybody finds out who God is, who Jesus was. There's no question anymore. Paul says that at point in time, that point in time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's never been in question. The only question is when will you do that? Will you do that now out of reverence to him? Or will you do it at that point in time in the future when you're forced to do it? And in the book of Revelation, we are told when, we, when it all goes down, you know the only response we will be able to offer? Fall face down in worship. That's the only response we will know what to do. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting you do that. There's not a lot of room in between rows. But it's high time that you stop thinking about what the person next to you is thinking. One of the greatest privileges we have is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil in the temple split, which means that we all have the privilege to go into his presence, not just the pastor, every one of us. He says, when two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be there with you. 
we have to grow in this. And I'm telling you, in the context of, do you want his power? Then you must learn how to do that. You must learn how to do that. Keep reading. The story goes on in verse uh, 31. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes. He descended, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it, large enough to hold the two seas of seed. The next principle is you must make an effort to restore and repair broken relationships. I almost missed it. Almost missed it. First time through, just skip right over it. Did, did you catch the beginning of verse 31? Why does he mention 12 stones? Why 12? Well, he gives us the answer right away because that represents the original 12 tribes of the descendants of Jacob or God's people. But what makes this so significant is that at the time that 1 Kings is written, historically speaking, there has been a civil war and God's people are not united. They are two separate nations. You have the northern tribes, the 10 northern tribes called Israel, and you have the two southern tribes called Judah. They are not united. And this is Elijah's way of standing before God's people and saying, you want power? God's people must be united. They must be united spiritually. And in this case, politically. They must be united relationally. Do you want God's power? Do you want it in your family? Suggestion. Maybe mom and dad need to spend a little bit of time repairing some strange relationships. Maybe you need to reach out to a son, to a daughter, to a parent. I'd say, you know what? We got to talk some things through, mom. We got to work some things out. Do we want power in this church? We need to stop getting at each other's throats and realize, is it okay that we disagree with each other? Absolutely. Sometimes it's healthy. But we must be united. One of the ways you gain power is through unity and through healthy relationships. So I'm just saying it's your call. Who's someone that used to be in your life, you used to have a healthy relationship with, you probably need to have a relationship, healthy relationship with, and no longer anymore. Whoever just popped into your head, I'm just saying, your unwillingness to at least try, because this is not a magic wand, it won't automatically go back to normal. But your unwillingness to at least try is a barrier to God's power in your life. And Elijah reminds them of that. Let's keep reading verse 33. He arranged the wood. He cut the bull into the pieces, laid it on the wood. Then he said, fill four jars of water, pour it on the offering and on the wood. Okay, let me check it out. You guys been doing this. You've been dancing, slashing. You've been doing everything for four to five hours. I'm going to do it. I'm going to put a hose on my, my sacrifice. Check this out. Verse 34. I want you to do it again, he said. And they did it again. I want you to do a third time, he ordered. They did it a third time. Water was running down all over the altar and even filled the trench. Verse 36. At that time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stopped, stepped forward, and he prayed. Principle number four, if you want God's power, you need to openly admit your need for God. I mean, that's what he's doing. Openly admitting your need for God. Paul says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's the humbleness to acknowledge, I can't do this thing called life on my own. I need you, God. I need your power, and I need your strength, and I need your wisdom. I need you. I cannot do it on my own. Question. If you were Elijah, by the way, what would you have you prayed for? For me, it's kind of obvious. You know what I would have prayed for? Fire. That's what I want. Right. I, I need you, God, right now. Bail me out. I kind of set this thing up, put myself out on the line. I need it right now. 
it's very interesting that that is not what Elijah prays for. It's very interesting what he prays for. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. More than anything else, I want people to know that you're God. You're the one true God. Let it be known that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your command. I want people to know that, you know, above everything else, you are God and I serve at your request. I serve for you. And then he says at the end, he says, answer me, verse 37, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. I want you to show yourself to be the one true God. I want people to know that I'm your servant. And more than anything else, I want your people to come back to you. And I would say to those of you who have been on the fence, come back to him. It's not just the prophet Elijah asking that. It is Jesus desperately wanting, come back. Go all in with him. See what happens. Elijah says, you know what? You're going you're to experience power like you never experienced. Last little bit, and let's wrap it up. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned the sacrifice. Here comes the power the wood, the stones, the soil licked up the water and the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah brought them down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them. Well, that's not a nice way to end the story. Can't he just give them a timeout? Can't he just like... Tell him not to do that ever again. Can he just, you know, send him to another country? This seems a little excessive. This is not the time for me to explain to you the theology of violence or war in the Old Testament. It's very interesting. Someday I'll get into it. If you're desperate to know, just email me. I'll send you some stuff. But it is the time to point out the application of what is happening here. It's the last thing. Jot it down. If you want to experience God's power, you must at some point drastically, immediately, and completely eliminate sin. Because ultimately, that is what is happening here. That is what is happening here. It's incredibly violent, but that's what sin is. It's very violent. It's very violent. Um, Some of us are wondering why we aren't experiencing the power of God. Very simple. It's because on the one hand, we're living for Him, but... But what we're flirting with sin. We're, we're dabbling with sin. We're playing with it. I'm not talking about those sins that, you know, just kind of pop up and we're like, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have said that. Those are going to always come up for the rest of your life because we are not perfect until we get into the presence of, of, of God. That's the truth. I'm talking about the sins that you and I keep doing repeatedly, habitually, And now we're just kind of explaining it away. It's just my personality type. That's just who I am. I've always been like that. You know, my father was like that. I'm like that as well. Or or those sins that we hide. We know they're wrong, so we don't want certain people to know about them. You know which one I'm talking about? Of course you do, because it just popped in your head. Why? Why aren't you killing it? Kill it. You must get serious about sin. You know why? Because it put your Savior and my Savior on the cross. That's why. It's that big of a deal. 
1963, the United States government was testing a nuclear submarine called the Thresher. And in one of their practice, you know, uh, voyages and such, testing it out, um, something happened to the engines and they flooded and they started to malfunction and the submarine, the, the, the Thresher, started to go deeper and deeper and deeper and they could not get it back up to the surface. Um, not just today, but especially in those days, um, submarines can only handle a certain amount of pressure. And they became incredibly concerned because it went deeper and deeper and deeper and the steel bulkheads began to crack. And eventually that sub was crushed and 129 of our um, men and women died on that submarine. The United States Navy decided that they wanted to recover the submarine because of the technology in it. They didn't want anyone else to get it. And so they sent down a new craft, and it was just a big, literally a big steel ball. And they, they, they sunk it, and they sent it down until they found the submarine. And they eventually found the, the thresher at a depth of 8,400 feet. It was crushed like an eggshell. I mean, it was just an absolute mess. They weren't surprised that the submarine was crushed. Because at that depth... Um, the pressure is 3,600 pounds per square inch. What the Navy was surprised at was not what happened to the submarine. You know what they were surprised at? It's interesting that our, our Navy would actually say this. They were surprised that at that depth, they found fish. And they openly asked the question, how? How can a fish survive at that depth? Because it, the fish doesn't seem to have inches and inches of iron supporting and surrounding its body. Seems to be a very thin layer of skin around the fish. How can they survive at that depth? You know what the very simple answer to that is? The very simple answer is that fish have the very same pressure on the inside than is on the outside. They match the pressure from the outside with their very own pressure and strength on the inside. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. You know all that garbage you're dealing with? You know those problems you need fixed? You know those financial issues and those relational issues and those job issues? You know those questions you need answered to? To him who is able to do immeasurably more than you could ask or you could imagine. And then it says this. According to his power, to God's power, that is at work within us. This topic of God's strength is not some dusty topic that just pastors talk about at Bible college or seminary. Oh, no, no. It applies and can impact your life today. Because he says, my power is available and can work in every single one of you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you've taught us today, and I thank you for your strength and your might but most importantly, as we've focused in on this, I thank you that you are a God that not just flexes his muscles, 
but makes your power and your might available to each and every one of us. You are a good God, and I thank you for that. Because so many of us today desperately need your strength. We desperately need your power and your energy to get through what we are struggling with right now. Father, in response to what we've learned, we're going to take a few minutes and we will respond with worship. And we will do that irrespective of who is standing next to us. We will do it because you deserve it and you ask that of us. Father, thank you for who you are. I pray that we would remember that as we leave here today and we go to our schools and our places of work, to our neighborhoods and homes. Remember that you are a God that is powerful and you give us the ability to access and tap into that power. Father, every single one of us I know, of the four or five things we talked about, there was at least one that stuck out to us. I pray that we would apply that one thing we learned that we would implement it and watch how you begin to change our life and give us that strength, energy, and power that only comes from you. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.